Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Couch Potato Diary. Good one for you guys today. Thank you for downloading and listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever possible. You probably already know this by the show title, unless I screwed that up. But Murad Atesh joining us from The Athletic as we talk Winnipeg Jets after they pull off one of the surprises of the postseason so far in the NHL, a sweep of the Edmonton Oilers. We'll get into all things Jets and maybe a little bit of Oilers coming up with him a little bit later on. If you have any thoughts on the show, send my way on Twitter. I am at PrimetimeKlein. Same thing on Instagram, twitch.tv slash PrimetimePK. Hoping to do some more stuff on there. If you want to email the show, we are CouchPotatoDiary at Yahoo.com. The music you were listening to provided by Wasted Talent. They have a new song, Drowning, out now. Check them out. Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. Uh, you can also follow their producer on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. So we're going to have the hockey stuff covered a little bit later on on the program. So I want to get into basketball to start. Last night, the LA Lakers get exactly what they need, and that is a victory over the Phoenix Suns in Game 2 of their Western Conference first round series. I guess Western Conference quarterfinals. Either way, it's the first round of the playoffs, and they got a win to tie the series up one game apiece. And we talked going in about how like LeBron and AD just need to be the best players. And in this game, they were. Um, Booker takes a bit of a step back after a phenomenal game one. And late in the game, it's LeBron making big shots. It's AD making big shots. And you just, you can't beat that if you are the, the Phoenix Suns. Like if, if those two guys are the best guys on the floor, you're not going to win that basketball game. Just plain and simple. So a little frustrating from a Phoenix standpoint, some of the, the shot selection in that game. But I think the... Pretty obvious key to this series now is the health of Chris Paul's shoulder. As when he is out on the floor, even if he's not 100%, when he's out on the floor, things just steer a little bit easier. Um, it, it just, it was so noticeable when it was Booker and Payne and uh, compared to even Paul and Payne and then Paul and Booker. The, the thing that gives you a bit of, uh, I guess, optimism, but I think also the thing that really drives home how important Chris Paul is, is the run that the Suns went on early in the fourth quarter with Booker on the bench. That, from a Lakers standpoint, that can't happen. You have a one-armed uh, Chris Paul. You have Crowder, who's not hitting anything until he gets fouled, apparently. But you, you are playing pretty substantially undermanned. Like, when you think about it, Payne wasn't hitting a lot in game one. He plays better in game two. But like I said, like, you have Paul who can't lift his arms. You have Crowder who is missing everything. And it was really DeAndre Ayton who came to play. And that that is... It is a blessing, I think, when you look at it from a Phoenix Suns perspective because of the what you can do without your best player out there. But I think it also really drives home how important Chris Paul is going to be to the Phoenix Suns in this series. So uh, th this is still very much alive. This isn't okay, the Lakers figured it out, here we go. Because one of the things that helped the Lakers out in this is one of the things that helped them out in their championship run, and that was the jump shooting of Anthony Davis. And I don't know how sustainable that is. Like, if he's... If he's making threes, those are the shots you're going to give him, right? Like, you, you can't take everything away. Now, with certain lineups that the Lakers have out there, there are things that you can just cheat off of. Like, you have Marc Gasol hitting that three last night. Okay. From a defending the Lakers standpoint, if Marc Gasol is going to make that shot, then Marc Gasol is going to make that shot. That That's fine. You're, you're not shifting your entire rotation over to Marcus Gasol to make sure he's not taking open threes when you have AD and LeBron out on the floor. But for, for Anthony Davis, 
it's kind of like LeBron early in his career, where if he's going to hit those shots, then I guess it's just not your night. But you, you will give him those opportunities. And the thing that kind of struck me late, he gets Cam Johnson on him on a switch late. And instead of just like backing him down in the post and just going to work on that poor boy, he just like keeps shuffling off to the side, does a handoff to LeBron, and the shot is a fallaway three into the corner. Now, it ends up falling because LeBron James is one of the best players on planet Earth, but it felt like the Lakers were bailed out by LeBron's talent a lot in that game, and that shouldn't really be the case when you're playing in the first round. Like, that's that's something against uh, against the Clippers, or what, maybe even the Mavericks, or in the NBA Finals. Those are things that happen. But in the first round, th there wasn't a whole lot happening on offense, and then it was just LeBron hitting fallaway shots, and he's just the best player on the earth, so that is what's going to happen. But I think from a Phoenix perspective, you can still be optimistic about it, but that, that did feel like one that if you have Paul at 100%, it might have gone a little bit differently. And to go to the Staples Center up to nothing is a whole lot different than going there tied at one. Just ask the LA Clippers, who are in a bit of the reverse of that, as they now have to hit the road after dropping the first two at home. And that home crowd for Dallas is going to be bananas. I said I wasn't super panicked after game one. I am now panicked here in game two from a, a Clippers perspective. And just a quick aside, some Raptor fans really getting on Kawhi. I I want nothing but the best for Kawhi Leonard as a Toronto Raptor fan. Again, I have a, a painting of Kawhi. I am looking at it right now in my office, right here at my desk. So big fan, big fan. Um, huge supporter, want nothing but the best for Kawhi. But how can you not be cheering for the Dallas Mavericks in this series? What Luka is doing is nothing short of spectacular. And the thing that's concerning for the Clippers is, A, that home atmosphere is going to be like nothing Kawhi and Paul George have had to deal with as a team. But also, like, that was vintage Kawhi Leonard. That was Kawhi last night saying, hey, we're not going to lose. And Luka just said, yeah, you are. And Paul George even had a, a good game last night. I think he ends up with 25. And he comes up with a big steal late that makes it a four-point game. And it's okay. Clippers have kind of got this figured out. And then they just didn't. And it, it wasn't just Luka showing up. They, they start doubling Luka late. And he finds Tim Hardaway for an open three. And then they're able to, to rotate it around. And I think Richardson ends up hitting a three. So you have other players on the Dallas Mavericks. Even Porzingis had a pretty good game last night. You have other players on the Mavericks now stepping up. It's not just Luka. But Luka has been the best player in the playoffs so far. And that is very concerning from a Clippers standpoint. I I think there are real problems with the Clippers, and we're going to have a lot of time to do the, the Sky is Falling show on the LA Clippers if this series doesn't go their way. But this is turning into kind of the defining Luka performance and, and the defining Luka series, or at least the first one. And if, if he gets the win, a guy who already has a lot of hype around him is going to have just that much more. And the issue for the Clippers, I don't know how you stop this. Like, they're, you're defending him quite well. For sure, don't put Beverly on him anymore. That's that's one where Doncic is kind of just licking his chops at that matchup. But, like, Zubats gave him problems last year. That's not working this year. Kawhi certainly can give him issues. He, he is such a good passer that if you double-team him, he's just going to kill you. And maybe from a Clipper standpoint, it's okay. If Tim Hardaway Jr. is hitting open threes, then Tim Hardaway Jr. is hitting open threes. Like that's, then we are just going to lose those games if 
the other guys on the Mavericks are going to make those, but you make the other guys on the Mavericks make those. It's going to be interesting to see what the adjustments are for the Clippers in Game 3, and if they don't make the proper ones, what adjustments the Clippers are going to make going into another disappointing offseason, where you don't have first-round picks for forever, and you have one playoff series win to show for it, after playing scared to not face the Lakers in the first round. How's that working out for the Clippers? Aside from that, not a whole lot really to talk about basketball-wise since Monday. Like, you have the Milwaukee Bucks doing Milwaukee Bucks things like that. That that th- This is not the same Miami Heat team from last year. Crowder was a big part of that, but also they're not getting caught off guard by Tyler Hero and by Robinson anymore. And you, you can see that they have kind of figured that aspect out. And Drew Holiday is such a boost to that team and how they are able to play defensively and offensively as well. So I, th- I think the Bucks they needed that win in game one. And I, I, I the Heat probably take a game or two in this series, but Milwaukee is off to the next round, I would say. And the Boston Celtics just have no resistance for the Brooklyn Nets whatsoever. couple quick hockey thoughts. The Carolina Hurricanes certainly putting a scare into a lot of people. I have them coming out of their side of the bracket to be in the Stanley Cup final. And I will admit, even when they lost game four and the series was tied at two, it was, okay, well, it doesn't really matter because they're just better than the Preds anyway, so it's going to be fine. But they get the fear of God putting uh, put into them last night. They still have the 3-2 series lead now. I still think it is going to be fine, but holy cow, this is a bit of a wake-up call to the Carolina Hurricanes. After a wake-up call in Game 1, the Toronto Maple Leafs are just better than Montreal. Like, that. that's... Carey Price is spectacular, and he is excellent, and he can only do so much. Like, t- Toronto is just on an absolute roll, and it's not... It's not just Matthews. Like, it's Nylander, it's Kerfoot, even without Tavares. This team just has so much talent. No Felino. I don't know where you put him back into the lineup when he comes back for Toronto. But it's kind of funny that the the North Division gave everyone a weak head start, and now their division might be the first one done the first round. Um, We're going to get a couple that probably wrap up tonight. But it's just, it's interesting how that played out. And uh, I think there are going to be some pretty serious conversations had out in Montreal in this offseason. I don't think the coaching change was the right move. And I, I don't know, I don't know if Claude Julien is the one who can who would have been able to fix this, but the utilization of the talented players in Montreal has been an issue this series that that's been talked about a lot. I don't get, I don't get how Cole Caulfield is sitting. And if you wanted to, to mix in a couple of guys in this back to back that they had, then fine. But to not play those guys early in the series, I think was a gigantic mistake from Montreal. And it ends up like they win game one, but I I just, I, I do not understand Montreal's, strategy when it came to that so we'll see what Montreal um ends up doing but that that series feels pretty well over as well quickly in baseball the Blue Jays get back in the win column last night with a victory over the Yankees and one of the things we talked about it's kind of it's funny how things corrected themselves quickly the offense is on fire right now with how well Vladdy is hitting and Semyon is uh, hitting equally as well. And they're putting up runs every single night. The problem is the bullpen regressed in a real hurry. And I I don't know how you fix that. And and it's an interesting conversation in baseball because anytime a reliever is signed to a big contract as well, 
can't pay relievers. Like, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. And then you get into the middle of the season and, oh, well, can't have too many relievers and look at like the bullpens falling apart. Like, so what? You're supposed to get the best relievers in baseball for $2 million a year. And then when they don't sign with you for $2 million a year, oh, well, you overpaid. The, the Some of the criticism on that is a little ridiculous. I... I agree, like, don't pay $15 million for bullpen arms because you can find failed starting pitchers anywhere, but you still have to find the right ones. You can't just, okay, well, we have a bunch of guys at $750,000, so our bullpen is fine. I, I still think you need actual talent back there, and I think the Blue Jays still have some. I, I don't think the bullpen is this bad, but it it's pretty clear the Blue Jays need to acquire some guys to get some outs, and they have... A very exciting one in Alex Manoa coming up for the uh, for the Jays today. I'm excited to see him. And this is the most excited I've been for a prospect since, uh, well, last year with Nate Pearson. And a lot of the bloom has come off the rose of Nate Pearson. I think that's ridiculous that people are already getting off the, the Nate Pearson hype train. By the way, MLB The Show, the disrespect to have Nate Pearson as a 64 overall as I get the game. Um, also, I always find it tricky with that will be the show. This is a tangent, by the way. If you want to just fast forward a couple, we have Murata Tesh coming up in a matter of moments. But from a, a video game perspective, I never know when to start a franchise with the Blue Jays because they, they've done a better job now because you have all the minor leaguers actually in the game, except for Austin Martin, but there are people doing God's work with the created players. But I, I start a franchise and Vladdy's a 74 overall, and then two weeks into the season, he's on a hitting tear and now he's at an 82. Like, what? I just traded for Mike Soroka. Am I supposed to just throw away all that hard work I did acquiring Mike Soroka to just get Vladdy as a, a higher overall? The answer, by the way, is probably yes. Yes, you should do that because he's my favorite player and I, I want him to be fun to play with. But either way, just a, a mini, mini rant about not knowing when to... I remember before they had the minor leaguers in the games, I would like put off... Or I would have a season going, and then by the time September call-ups come around, okay, well, I need to start a new one because Richard Urania is up at the big club now. And how? What am I just not going to play with Richard Urania? Come on! So it, it, I've always I've always overthought this, and I'm probably overthinking it now. And uh, you listening probably think I'm ridiculous. Also, the MVP conversation is wrapped up already. It's Shohei Otani. Uh, for what he is doing with the bat. And with his arm, it's just, it's, it's unfair for everyone else because Vladdy is hitting just as well as Shohei Otani, but he doesn't have an ERA in the twos. So what can you do? I guess, but no, Shohei Otani continues to be must watch television and we need the angels to be a good baseball team. Now, not just because of Mike Trout, but like they have so many watchable players. You have Trout, you have Shohei Otani, you have Rendon. I, I even still appreciate Justin Upton. They had Albert Pujols, one of my favorite players until a week ago. So or a couple weeks ago now, I guess. So, please, please, angels, be good. Just, someone, like the, the U Darvish, uh, or not U Darvish, U Darvish should have gone to the, the, the angels. That should have, why are the angels not acquiring big name starting pitchers the way they're acquiring bats? We, we need some pitching out in LA. Uh, they have a good one in Shohei Otani, but we'll, yeah. It's it's frustrating to see where the Angels are at. All right, some music. And then Marat Atesh coming up as we talk the Winnipeg Jets coming off of their sweep over the Edmonton Oilers. The music that you hear on Couch Potato Diary is provided by Wasted Talent. You can find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's are. And you can find their producer, Tommy Fresh, on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. 
The Winnipeg Jets are the talk of the hockey world. At least their series win over the Edmonton Oilers is. And here to discuss that from The Athletic is Marat Atesh. Marat, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you? I'm still sorting out the shock a little bit. I'm still sorting, <laughs> sorting out the, the complete lack of sleep from that triple overtime game. Right. Uh, but yeah, I had no conception at all that we could be looking at a Winnipeg Jets four game series sweep. Yeah. Well, I, and I think if you came into this series and said, okay, well, by May 26th, uh, you're going to have a bit of an extended break. It'd be okay. Well, getting draft stuff ready. I'm sure the Jets tried really, really hard, but uh, Edmonton just too talented. So I guess that the first, we'll, we'll start broad and work a bit more specific. How, how did this happen? How are the Winnipeg Jets advancing to the second round after just four games over the Edmonton Oilers? I would like to paint a picture for you of, of all of the X's and O's and the tactical changes that Paul Maurice put into place from going two seven and O against the Edmonton Oilers in the regular season, outscored 30 something to 20 something had no answer whatsoever for the transition offense of Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Um, and I would like to say that because it was a four game sweep, Winnipeg had it solved and the answer was there. The, the truth is, they made just several different tiny changes that I think added up to giving themselves a chance in every game. And I think that they got a little bit lucky to win all four. I mean, they were one goal games, even the one that wasn't overtime was a one goal game and then two empty netters. So the first major key for me was from an X's and O's perspective, the idea that Winnipeg's top line, that's Mark Shifley, Blake Wheeler, Kyle Connor played a lot of minutes against McDavid and Dreisaitl and they backed way off of the forecheck to the point where it wasn't a 2-1-2 like the Jets usually run or sometimes the Jets like to trap and that that involves two guys starting at least in the offensive zone but sometimes even much much more aggressively than that they threw one guy at the Oiler defenseman coordinating the breakout and then you could look and I have photos on my cell phone of the the neutral zone almost empty until you get four Winnipeg Jets across their own blue line and the idea yeah, it, it, like it's just it's such a sea change from the regular season. But the idea was that um, if McDavid and Drysaddle are going to get speed through the neutral zone, they're either going to have to make a play one on two or one on three against as many Jets as there were. They're going to have to make a special sort of play where they're going to have to give up the puck or admit that they're going to get held up on their on their way into the zone. So there there was no way to gain the zone with both speed and the puck because you know wouldn't Winnipeg park the bus at their own blue line. And the rest, the rest, Peter, to me is just is goaltending. Connor Hellebuck was incredible as he always is. It was bounces on game one's game winning goal. Dominic Toninato made a deflection for the two one goal that bounced twice on its way into the net. And then <laughs> even they had to go to video review to make sure it was a goal at all. It was just things went right. Um, uh, game two, Dylan DeMello throws up his hands from his back on the penalty kill. With his back to McDavid, he has no idea when Connor McDavid's going to shoot, but there had just been a scramble play in front of Connor Hellebuck. The puck squirts out to McDavid in the circle. Nets wide open. Hellebuck's out. DeMello's on his back. He throws both of his hands in the air as a prayer. Puck hits DeMello's hand, goes out. Keeps it at 0-0. Jets get to overtime, win at 1-0. So there's so much stuff like that in a series like this, but they battled so hard. They committed to those X's and O's better than they had at any point in a regular season. The belief was there. They got the bounces. They got the big goals in game three, a huge comeback from four, one down to force overtime. Everything went right. 
and it was still the closest four nothing sweep that I've ever heard of in my life. Right. Yeah, it, it's weird to say that a series was so close, but it, it ended in four games. Um, I, I love the the strategy of putting the Shifley line up against McDavid and Dreisaitl, especially when they load up that line with those two superstars, because like from Paul Maurice's standpoint, okay, maybe we take a bit of an L with that one because McDavid and Dreisaitl are just better than everybody. But lines two through four, we got you pretty substantially. I, I really like that idea from Paul Maurice and from the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, that's the, exactly the theory, right? I mean, you take a bit of an L and you acknowledge that because there's right. no outscoring that line if they're playing well. It just it's, it just doesn't happen. And so then Mark Shifley in particular could have been a difference in a lot of different ways because he's such a tremendous offensive player. He had his defensive commitment and his short shifts uh, commitment question during the regular season he was benched after a particularly poor effort against Toronto um, on a hockey night in Canada this season right there were some issues about how committed to the two-way game he was because sometimes he sees opportunities that other people don't see and he, he pushes for offense so when you have that matchup and you have Winnipeg surviving it one of the big differences in the details was that Shifley committed not I should say, like, there are times when he, he reached for offense, but when you talk about the patience needed to throw one four checker and pull everybody else back, sometimes that means a really offensively minded player like that has to go against his first instinct. And I thought there was such incredible discipline most of the series on that part. And then Adam Lowry, like, you can't say enough about Adam Lowry, Adam Andrew Cop, pardon me, and Mason Appleton. They became Winnipeg's second line, and, and it had such a huge part of that shutdown as well. And for Shifley, I don't want to say it was like a coming out party because I think everyone understands he is very good at the sport of hockey. But I don't know if we even after this series have a grasp on how good he is. Like, well, when you look at the North, it was kind of setting up, okay, McDavid versus Matthews. This is going to be cool. And now it's Shifley versus Matthews. And while he's not McDavid, I don't know if it's as big of a step down as some people think. Like, I think this is a guy who is working his way into superstar status in this league. Well, he's been a point per game player forever now. So there, there's one right. thing that, you know, in terms of production, there are a few players that are Mark Shifley's equal, not just in terms of what he creates for himself, but the quality of chances he creates for other people. He can play a, a big physical game. He can take contact and, and keep the puck in, in just the right spot. He can outweigh defenses. He puts pucks into dangerous areas of the ice. Mark Shifley is a deadly offensive player. And I think that, I think the league is beginning to figure that out from that perspective. Um, if you're an offense first sort of guy, I mean, he should be a perennial all-star. The, the issue for me, and you see this in the analytics, but you also see it just when you watch, is there are times when he cheats for offense. And the idea that he was able to make the commitment that he did in that series, I think was a big step. And if you see a Mark Shifley that's that committed and dedicated to playing exactly the game plan against the best players in the world, knowing that there are going to be moments where you give up an offensive opportunity just to do things the right way and make sure that you shut things down. And that maybe at the end of the series in game four, Neil Pion's going to knock a puck down, fire it up to, to Kyle Connor, and you're going to put the series on ice because you did it the right way. I mean, that becomes an all-around player that should be talked about as one of the best centers. So if we see this beyond this series, if we see this against Austin Matthews, if that's who Winnipeg gets or beyond, then it does become to me, I like your word coming out party, but for those sort of nerds who like the two-way aspect of the game as well. Yeah. Um, the, the Winnipeg blue line is one that fascinates me because th this was in the early days of Winnipeg Jets 2.0, it, it was the defensive strength of this team. But then you lose Truba and Dustin Bufflin disappears into, pardon a bit of the pun, fi uh, thin air. Um, and all of a sudden you have Josh Morrissey 
and a bunch of dudes who are like really good number five defensemen. And it, it felt like some kind of came along, but it, it's still not the, the most noteworthy aspect of this team. What do you make of the defensive side of things for the, the Winnipeg Jets with all those guys leaving over the last couple of years? Yeah, it was kind of like the Simpsons baseball episode for a little while where <laughs> one after another defenseman left for some other reason or injury. And I remember, Peter, I was talking to Paul Maurice in August, right before Dustin Bufflin's magical disappearance. And at that time, it was not official that Bufflin was going to be out. The idea was that he was still going to be in, at least on the record it was. And so I was asking questions about, um, well, look, I know you guys lost certain players over the offseason, Myers Truba, um, Ben Sherrod as well. So can we talk about how important Dustin Bufflin's going to be, how important Josh Morrissey's going to be? Because your defense is, is already outmatched. You've lost so many guys. And then Dustin Bufflin exit. <laughs> so that's where Winnipeg was coming from. It really was Josh Morrissey, who had been to that point, a really well-rounded top four player. Neil Pionk was coming in, and he was a vet Winnipeg was making, really. He had had really good success as a third-pairing guy in New York, but when they pushed him up the lineup, it didn't always work out, and there were some gap issues and, and things like that. Um, but Winnipeg saw that it was more about the context that he played in than who Neil Pionk was as a defender because he's been probably during both the regular seasons since coming over Winnipeg's best defenseman. Even after that, with Pionk and Josh Morrissey, that gives you two bona fide top four defensemen that everybody may know about. And it's taken a lot of patchwork. Dylan DeMello was a great ad at the trade deadline last season that I think would be a completely unheralded defenseman. When Winnipeg uses him with Josh Morrissey, Josh Morrissey looks like a top four defenseman once again. When Josh Morrissey plays with Tucker Pullman, who had been a third pairing guy, like you say, a very good number five, or he even had some AHL excellence as well. Morrissey wasn't able to play against the best players and have success. So Dylan DeMello has been a real big key. Derek Forbert is probably playing above his depth on that second pair. Logan Stanley was on the AHL team a year ago. Now he's the shots block leader for the Jets. Tucker Pullman is now back in that third pair where he probably makes the most sense in terms of what, where you get the most out of him. But how many of those names, like if you're, um, you know, an audience outside of Winnipeg, are you intimately familiar with? And I think that that says a whole lot about where Winnipeg is coming from defensive wise and how impressive it is that they're managing to, to hold the fort against players as good as McDavid and Dreisaitl. Well, and it was almost poetic how the series ends where you have Pionk who, who comes in for Truba, who's this heralded defenseman and still quite good. Um, but he's kind of, okay, power play specialist, offensive dude. Is he a real legitimate defenseman? And he makes a good play on a dump in from the best player on the planet that sets up the game winning goal. Like it, it was a, a real nice kind of full circle moment, I thought for him. Absolutely. And he has been excellent over the last two seasons. Like, like I was saying as well, I remember talking to him on his, we, we had an interview right after the trade was announced and I was asking uh, Pionk about his strengths and weaknesses. And I remember him talking about how physical he was. And I remember thinking, well, at your size, that doesn't really, I don't understand. But he was in Connor McDavid's face when that matchup was happening. He was in Leon Dreisaitl's face. He was throwing hits. Um, and he was able to stay in sort of the competitive fight against players much bigger than him. In addition to making those smooth stick plays, like knocking that pass down that we sort of would have expected him to excel at. So he's quietly become a bit of a chippy, all-around, top-four capable guy, and also a real threat on the, on the Jets' power play as well. 
And maybe the, the best way to, to help out a defense is to have a goalie that's just better than freaking everybody. And the Jets certainly appear to have that, um, at least better than most everybody. I don't even really have a question here. Just kind of gush <laughs> about Connor Hellebuck for a couple of minutes for me. Well, he was number one on my heart trophy ballot a year ago. He's not number one this year, but he's on it. And that reflects just the quality of chances that Winnipeg's defense does, in fact, to give up at the end of the day. Um, whether you use public models and the expected goals, no matter which site or metric you use, Connor McDavid, sorry, Connor Hellebuck, <laughs> talking about Connor McDavid on so many shows all, all right. long. We're sick of it. Come on. It's <laughs> Hellebuck gush time. Um, I, I saw a stat this week, and I think this was um, from Kevin Woodley, who was citing stats about how Connor Hellebuck's workload in the playoffs against Edmonton was a little bit easier than it had been during the regular season. And the idea is, okay, sure, that means give credit to Winnipeg's defense. It was excellent. It was all in. We talked about, you know, the forecheck backing off. We talked about all those defensemen playing a little bit over their head. And so the argument based on these stats was, okay, well, Winnipeg's defense did a good job. At the end of it, the conclusion, though, a little like buried in the lead piece of numbers, Connor Hellebuck still saved four goals above an expectation in those four games of hockey one per game the difference in the series every every game was a one goal game wow so even when Connor Hellebuck has it easy compared to his normal workload right he's playing defense out of his mind he's still saving an extra goal per game and he's still winning games for the Winnipeg Jets uh a couple other ones I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit so sorry about that but uh, on at forward we talked about the forward depth when I think of that that strategy that was used with Shifley against the McDavid line, I would think, okay, well, you have Pierre-Luc Dubois in there. So that's going to be, he's going to be someone who really takes a step forward in this series. And he was fine, but I, I didn't view him as like a real game changer in this series. You've watched him much more closely than I have. What have you made of year one as a Winnipeg Jet for Pierre-Luc Dubois? Yeah, you know what? I saw it the same way. I, I really did. I don't think that when he came in in, in game two and, and in game two, three, and four, did he really take over and I know that he has that that playoff reputation because boy was he good against Toronto Tampa Bay as well he's had some really good playoff series in his life so far he's had some really big regular seasons in his life so far as well um, and as a young player you, you're sort of thinking that okay maybe this is his time to shine but the truth is it's been a bit of an awkward transition to Winnipeg uh, he started with that two-week quarantine he comes back plays I think it was just two games before getting hurt and missing more time comes back um looking for chemistry it really just hasn't happened yet for Pierre-Luc Dubois in Winnipeg for me I take a really long view on that I I, yeah. I really believe in the player I believe in the track record I believe in the speed the power the skill set that he brings um, but there was a reason to me why he comes in and in game two before Nick Ehlers is there why he and, and Paul Stastny and I believe it was Christian Veselino on that night but these are all a blur at this point um, <laughs> could have been Andrew Cobb part of me the point that I'm trying to make is there's a reason why that became the third line, even though it had star power in Pierre-Luc Dubois, Paul Stastny on it. You have Shifley playing those tough matchups, Lowry playing tough matchups as well. And now you have them as a third line. And it was a safe home because he's not dominating. He's not that player that you absolutely need to throw over the boards again and again and again. Uh, and Winnipeg, I think heading into that series, whether it's Toronto or Montreal, whatever it's going to be, has a decision to make and is, do they ride that out and accept that he, Stastny, and now it's Nick Ehlers healthy, are still looking for chemistry? And, and maybe they're a third line, uh, maybe they're a second line. Who knows exactly what we're going to get for them as, as Ehlers and Dubois recover from injury and look for chemistry? Or do they look for a little bit of a shakeup or a shuffle? And I think that it's just 
endure it for them right now. I think that they just need to accept it and, and will accept it, pardon me, again, riding Shifley and Lowry as hard as they have. And that's just one of the, the many aspects of the job Paul Maurice has done this year that uh, I, I don't think he gets talked about enough. And that's weird to say about a coach on a hockey team in Canada. But you look at how this season has gone for the Jets with the, the line A situation. Um, you, you trade him for Dubois, who, as you mentioned, has to quarantine for two weeks. Then he plays for a couple of minutes and he's gone again. You have him calling out one of the most respected players in the NHL, Blake Wheeler, early in the season. You talked about the, the Shifley thing. Like there are so many landmines that he has just maneuvered this team through throughout the regular season there is another simulation of this year where everything goes to hell for for Winnipeg and I think he has done an amazing job with this team and I I don't think he gets the credit he deserves for what he's done in a, a north division that people like to dump on a little bit but you look at the talent that's in this division they're even Ottawa who sucks like they still have a, a lot of very talented players the Flames couldn't put it together they have a ton of talent the Canucks were wow but they have a ton of talent like you are there aren't a whole lot of easy nights in this division and he just managed this whole thing I, I thought he did an amazing job what again you're watching it a little bit closer what have you seen from Paul Maurice this year well you're right to bring up a whole bunch of different touch points because I have I have so many different opinions based on where we were at in the season and what was happening at that moment. Um, initially, uh, one of the first things that confused me was Dylan DeMello being put on that third pairing instead of with Josh Morrissey, because that pairing is the only version of Josh Morrissey over the last two years that is above 50% in, in expected goal shots, all of the flow of play sorts of metrics. DeMello is such a calm veteran presence that Morrissey plays great with. I wondered about that. That was a head scratcher. There was a moment when Nathan Beaulieu was injured playing through a torn labrum in his shoulder, and he was put on the top pairing with Josh Morrissey as well. Both of those guys are left-handed. Morrissey was made to play on his offhand size to accommodate this injured player who traditionally is a third-pairing defenseman anyway. So there were, there were some things to point to, believe me, that I, I, I was baffled by, did not understand, and I think that there was some criticism of coaching well-warranted this season. But at the same time, you look at Calgary, Vancouver, some of these other situations where they have talent, but at times we're just simply not able to put it together. Winnipeg survived. Winnipeg didn't, I thought they would have a tougher time uh, than they did this season because they, I saw such quality in, so, in some of those other teams. Winnipeg never really came off it. They never really let things get away until the very end of the season where they were on a losing streak there, but they were able to mitigate all of their issues better than a lot of those other teams that were probably equal with them in talent. And I thought Paul Maurice had a lot to do with that. I thought that he was very aggressive in, in protecting Blake Wheeler uh, in the media. Uh, you guys are beaking my captain. He said all the analytics and the, and the deep dives you can do won't point out what he's going through right now. And it comes out later. He's playing through cracked ribs and down the stretch, you know, Wheeler turned the corner and in the playoffs, he's been amazing. Uh, he's really been quite good. So I guess what I'm trying to say through all of that is that there, there's been stuff to like, there's been stuff not to like, but when it came to the playoffs and getting ready for them, turning that 2-7-0 record against Edmonton into a four-game sweep, getting buy-in from Mark Shifley, whose defense I've criticized, to play the right way, to play those short shifts, to, to, um, to really commit to that five-man defense, um, coming up with that in the first place, making those systematic tweaks, and, and then just managing i guess the emotions of what has been one of the wildest years that any of us can remember covid and all the different ways that it affects their day to day i think on the human side of things on the on the face-to-face -face dealing with his most important player sides of things i don't know if anybody would be rivaled as paul Maurice.
as much rivaled by Paul Maurice. Finding, <laughs> finding my words. <laughs> well, and, and really the decision to rope dope the Oilers with the two and seven record <laughs> is just absolute brilliance. Um, on the opposition, just for a, a quick note, um, Edmonton is going to get a lot of the headlines and they have. ESPN even talks about them. Um, what did you make uh, of the, the opposition to the Jets through the, that four-game series? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. I think that this is one of the situations where bouncers and goaltending really will change forever how we perceive this series. And, like, let's, let's go back to game one. Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are on separate lines, and both of their lines are creating more than they're giving up from a scoring chance perspective. Winnipeg's having issues defending against them. Period one is tentative from both teams, but in the second and third, it's really Edmonton that's coming in waves. It's Jesse Pugliarvi who scores the series' first goal. It's one nothing Edmonton. And then you look back at all of the regular season history. Every time Winnipeg chased a game against the Edmonton Oilers and opened up, Edmonton made them pay. Connor McDavid would score off the rush. Leon Draisaitl would score off the rush. There was a 6-1 game. Five of the goals were off the rush. Two and a half minutes after Jesse Puglieri's goal, Blake Wheeler leads a two-on-two. Dmitry Kulikov and Adam Larson completely flip, mess up their switch, allowing Tucker Pullman a lane to the net. Wheeler shoots from the top of the zone, bounces off Mike Smith's pad. I think he should have had it. Bounces right to Tucker Pullman. It's his third shot of 2020 from the center slot. He, not, he doesn't get to that real estate <laughs> traditionally. It is his first goal of 2021, pardon me, I said 2020. First goal of 2021. He's not an offensive powerhouse. He scores this goal, immediately ties the game, and suddenly a team that has failed to chase doesn't have to anymore, and they get to go back to the game that they need to play. They get that double deflection from Toninato to win the game. It's 2-1. And then let's talk about the opposition. Dave Tippett splits McDavid, or sorry, unites McDavid and Dreisaitl giving themselves one overpowered line instead of two, which I thought was a, a curious decision given that flow of play-wise, maybe not results, but flow of play, I thought that they had the edge and would have been the advantage, a bit of a matchup issue for Winnipeg, but he puts them together. Uh, and then throughout the, the series after that, it seemed to be that Winnipeg was always dictating and Edmonton was always responding. And I thought that a whole bunch of that was just because the Jets got the early bounce in the early series lead. So what now for, for Winnipeg? Um, I, I'm assuming they will play Toronto, but obviously Montreal still has a, a bit of a say in that um, as, as my cat wants to join the, uh, the, the festivities. <laughs> um, for, the, uh, for the Winnipeg Jets, I, I kind of feel like the rest of this is just great. There's the cat. Um, I kind of feel like the rest of this is just gravy when you're talking about the Jets. They probably don't feel the same way. What are the expectations now of the Jets moving forward? Yeah, well, there's more belief in that room than there is outside of it. I'll tell you that much to be sure. I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> Dylan DeMello said today that, um, that you know, the, the noise, the outside noise of who predicted whom was known to the Jets, and they kind of had this belief in the room that they could bust some playoff brackets and ruin some playoff pools. And, and I mean, they did that by eliminating McDavid and Dreisaitl. It would be all the same heading into a matchup against Toronto. It would be such a similar scenario, but against a better, deeper team where I'm sure the national media is going to be all over the Maple Leafs. They're going to be all over Austin Matthews. Winnipeg's not going to get a whole lot of respect uh, in, in terms of the, the coverage. And perhaps rightfully so for, to an extent that they should be the underdogs against a team like that, assuming it is the Maple Leafs. They would be the underdogs. They were the underdogs a moment ago. 
it seems to have worked out for them. I guess if you have Connor Hellebuck and you get the bounces and you play the right way, it's tough to tell a team what they can't do. But I'm kind of with you. If you're asking me to make a series prediction, I think that they'd be the underdogs for the second straight year or series. Yeah. And I, I still would view it as a successful season for the Winnipeg Jets. Like, I think anything beyond this point um, is just kind of adding on top to a, a great year for Winnipeg. Um, last one for you. This has obviously been a year and a half almost like we've never seen before. Uh, just for you covering hockey during a pandemic and now covering playoff hockey into three overtimes in a pandemic. Um, what has this experience been like for you as we hopefully get a little bit closer to normalcy for next year? I think first and foremost, I've, I've really been able to take stock of how lucky I've been that I've been able to keep writing, keep, uh, you know, at, at the athletic, we were all sort of in this, well, what happens now mode a year ago when things got shut down and we were able to come up with a plan and I was able to keep uh, engaged with it. We had to return to play, things shook out. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that that I get to do what I get to do is like not lost on me ever. But it's especially something I'm reminded of every single day, I think, during just how odd this is. Um, from a coverage point of view, yeah, I can complain about Zoom calls. Like, they're, they're not as, you know, one-on-one -on -one as a conversation in the room would typically be. And, I mean, just you or me, if we're talking to a, an audience of the entire country every time we speak, how, you know, how personal are, uh, can you get how, right. in, in terms of talking to reporters and, and that? So there, there's changes in terms of how coverage is made. But... Um, but then I think like that's that's just noise given the, the circumstances of the of the rest of the year. The most emotions I felt all year were game three, right before puck drop. It was Winnipeg's first playoff game at home. The pump up music is blaring. I think it's all the lights by Kanye West. You got the Jets are just fired up. You can tell there's this like added life and and, and boost. And maybe it's because I'm in the building as opposed to in Edmonton, right? Because we're not traveling, so I'm in the right. building and I get to like perceive just how wired they are and how fired up they are for this playoff game and everything is right except you look and there's no fans in the building and I just like I got genuinely emotional I'm like I just wished that we had done this whole thing so much better pandemic wise and that they, they could have been there to enjoy what became two back-to-back -back just incredible nights for them so there's some, yeah some wistfulness that <laughs> Well, um, I, I've taken up way too much of your time. So uh, thank you for doing this. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I really enjoy your work over at The Athletic. So uh, I'm happy you get to be in the building. I didn't know that. So that's awesome. Um, but yeah, enjoy what is left of this Winnipeg run. And I'm sure we'll be chatting again soon. There you go, Murad Atesh from The Athletic joining me today. That's going to do it for Couch Potato Diary today. Again, any comments on the show, send them my way on Twitter. I am at PrimetimeKline. Same thing goes for Instagram, twitch.tv slash PrimetimePK. Uh, you can also email the show, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. The music provided by Wasted Talent. Find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. You can also find their producer on Instagram. Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. If you haven't got enough of me yet, we had no idea. It came out today, my general history podcast with my wife. This week we discussed the Berlin Wall. That show is on Instagram at We Had No Idea Podcast. One more show this week that's coming up on Friday. We have an AEW Double or Nothing preview. We have some big stuff planned. Hopefully it works out. Uh, but either way, talk to you guys on Friday. We're out.